uh, I once signed up for a ministry seminar, and after the first 30 minutes, I realized that I had made a terrible mistake. The speaker was so incredibly boring that it wasn't just that my attention was drifting, but I could feel my soul trying to leave my body at some point uh, during, this, during that uh, message. And uh, I know that some of you are thinking, now you know how we feel on Sundays, Pastor Josh. How dare you, first of all. Uh, but I wanted to be able to just walk out of the class or maybe put on some sunglasses so that um, I could close my eyes for a little bit. But unfortunately, unfortunately, there are a few uh, younger pastors that I mentor on a regular basis who are also attending the same seminar. And so I knew that uh, I'd set a good example. And if I just walked out and then didn't come back, it would be very clear to me because many of them had seen me and had said hi to me that morning. And so I spent the next two miserable hours playing that game. You know that game that not, where you're trying to fight nodding off and uh, trying to play it off as if like I'm really agreeing very seriously with the speaker or maybe that I'm, I'm, I'm praying very deeply as they're speaking. And I wonder how many of us feel that way in our relationship with Jesus and his word at times. That feeling of being utterly disconnected or bored with it. And last week, in our last time, excuse me, in Nehemiah, we talked about uh, experiencing the joy of the Lord as our strength, that the Lord Jesus makes us joyful and strong. And I want to ask for you to be considering this morning, is that actually true for you? Many of you know that verse, but do you experience that? And if not, how do we experience more joy in our relationship with him this morning? Turn in your Bible, if you have one, to Nehemiah chapter 8. We're going to be picking up in verse 13, where we left off last time. And we're in this series called Restore, how you experience restoration by returning to God to rebuild what is broken in your life. That he doesn't simply replace those janky broken parts, but in Nehemiah, God builds something new, something better. And isn't that a picture of the gospel when Jesus comes and builds us a new life, restores something much better than what we had? And the last passage we saw, uh, they had finished the walls of Jerusalem, building it up to create a refuge, welcoming people to worship God. Because restoration isn't just about walls, it's about worship to the glory of God and to the good of others. And so we discovered as God's people gathered together for worship around the word of God, that they actually heard from him and experienced his joy and his strength. And so today what we're looking at is afterwards, how did the people practically continue experiencing joy from God and his word? How do they enjoy a relationship with him? And so uh, it's not going to be on the slides, but I want to back up and read, uh, starting from verse 12, just to give you a little bit of context, because I think you'll hear the theme. There's kind of a bookend theme at the beginning and end of this passage that, that uh, you need to pay attention to. So in verse 12, and all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing, make great rejoicing because they had understood the words that were declared to them. On the second day, the heads of fathers' houses, of all the people with the priests and the Levites, came together to Ezra the scribe in order to study the words of the law. And they found it written in the law that the Lord had commanded by Moses that the people of Israel should dwell in booths during the feast of the seventh month. Wow, that seems very stirring to you, I can tell this morning. What is going on here? Let's take a look deeper in this passage. Verse 13, 
after this long night of celebration of what the Lord has said to them, of what the Lord has done for them in the Word of God, the community leaders, they return the next day, and they're hungry for more Bible study with Pastor Ezra. And so they spend the day with him, and they make an amazing discovery in verse 14 that God had commanded his people through Moses, way back in Moses' time in that Exodus generation, to celebrate the Feast of Booths. And it says uh, for you, you maybe read it over it and kind of glossed over it uh, in the seventh month, but it's after the new year, Leviticus chapter 23, verses 33 to 44, to make tents, to make booths from palm branches and different leaves uh, that they would dwell in them for a week to rest from work, to worship the Lord, to give their offerings, to have a feast together. And we find out later in this passage, in verse 17, that this festival it had become forgotten and fallen into the couch crack of dust and disuse by the time of Nehemiah. And so they are reading the law of God, the word of God, when they rediscover this festival, an opportunity to practice rejoicing in the Lord, but it's not simply the feast that brings people joy, that brings God's people joy. So what's powerful about this moment, what we're seeing in this passage is that all these people, they came together to study the Bible. They're eager to hear more from God. And then they come across this passage after the Jewish New Year. Remember in chapter 8, verse 2, they had just celebrated the Jewish New Year. And then they come to this passage that directs all generations of Israel to honor and enjoy God together two weeks after the Jewish New Year, that same seventh month in the Jewish calendar. They know deep in their bones that this is not a coincidence of their calendar, but the providence of their provider. And I will say that, can you imagine their excitement that God is speaking to us? It's the new year, and then we come across this passage that we didn't, know, we didn't plan for, and suddenly it's God telling pe God's people, what should we do during the new year? God is speaking to us specifically and clearly what we need to do right now through his word. And so the big idea of this passage is, this morning is that we discover joy in our relationship with God as he speaks directly into our lives through his word. That there's something powerful about encountering the living God and having him speak to us. Did that ever happen to you? That as you read the Bible, as you're listening maybe to a sermon, that he's speaking to you in such a specific, personally tailored way that you know that had to be God how to handle that crisis that you're going through, what direction your life needs to go, a conviction of a specific sin that nobody else knows about, but somehow God is speaking to you through that passage that day. Maybe about changing how you treat your spouse or your kids, giving you courage or comfort in the midst of a crisis, reminding you of the forgiveness and acceptance you have in Christ when you make a mistake. Last Sunday, Pastor Felicia, our guest speaker, came and preached about having a Sabbath rest. And I know that many of you uh, deeply were moved by that message or it spoke to you personally. In fact, a man approached me after church in tears. And as we talked, he was sharing with me about how he'd been so burnt out by the grind of his responsibilities, his family, his life, and was sharing with me, you know, I faithfully served the Lord as a father, as a worker, as a Christian, why don't I feel close to God? And there was something in that moment when Pastor Felicia read Ezekiel chapter 20, verse 20, when God says, keep 
my Sabbaths holy, then you will know that I am the Lord your God. That verse, it hit him like a lightning bolt, that I don't experience closeness with God, not because I'm not doing enough for God, but because I'm not taking time off with God to enjoy Him, to know Him, to rest, to worship. And so with that conviction came also an intense joy that the God of heaven and earth, who is powerful and present and cares enough to personally speak to this person through the word of God. That doesn't happen to me, though. God never speaks to me like that. Yes, he does. As, he come, as you come to Jesus and his word daily, maybe in your devotions or in your Bible reading, that he is speaking to you if you will just listen. And so this is what you can do. You ask God, you ask his Holy Spirit to open your heart, to open your mind. What do you want to say to me, Lord? Help me to hear it. Help me to hear what it is that you want to, me to, what that you want to say about me or my situation or to give me direction or a conviction where I need to change and how I can change through the power and presence of Jesus. God is speaking to us through his word. It is the most direct way that he's talking into your life, if you will listen. Okay, but practically, what does that look like? How does that actually bring us joy? Let's read on verse 15. And that, uh, and that they should proclaim it, they're talking about the uh, festival of booths, and publish it in all their towns and in Jerusalem, Go out to the hills and bring branches of olive, wild olive, myrtle, palm, and other leafy trees to make booths, as it is written. So the people went out and brought them and made booths for themselves, each on his roof and in their courts and in the courts of the house of God, in the square at the water gate and in the square at the gate of Ephraim. So in verse 15, they get the word out to all of God's people. They're building tents, they're dwelling in them, and then celebrate with God and each other for a week, just as it is written in scriptures. I know for some of you, you're like, wow, camping sounds great. No, it doesn't. I like beds, warm beds, clean showers. Some of you like to be dirty and lie on the ground. That's fine. But you know what? I would say that camping's not so great because God's people would disagree with you. Moses' people back in all throughout Exodus and Numbers, I did a study of this yesterday, five times throughout those two books, uh, it, the Israelites complained that, you know what? It's dusty and dirty in the desert. Where's the cucumbers? Where's the melons? Where's the leeks? Where's the meat? Where's the water? It was better back in being slaves in Egypt. Camping sucks, according to the Israelites. And I wonder given the context of this passage, moving forward in time to Nehemiah's people, I wonder if they were ever tempted to think this way. You know what? We had just moved into our new homes. Remember in chapter 7, verse 33, they had finished building the walls, and then they moved into their new homes all around the city. We just moved into these new homes, and you want us to stay in tents? <laughs> you know what? I think we're good. I, you know, we just had this Huge New Year's celebration, honoring God, remember in ch earlier chapter 8, with the best food, the best wine, and we even were sacrificial and generous with those who lack, with those who were poor. That could count, right? That, doesn't that count as a feast? So let's use that. We could use that and say that, check the box, we, we had our festival of booze, right? You see, when the Word of God calls us to do something that's uncomfortable or costly, I wonder if you're ever tempted to rationalize or ignore what God is saying. I wonder if that was tempting for the Israelites. 
I know, I wonder if it's tempting for you and I. When God speaks to us through his word, I want you to love and honor your spouse. Well, maybe if they do it first. That's not what the command of God says in his word, does it? Not contingent about what the other person does. I want you to gather weekly for worship with God's people. But Omicron, you know, even though I've been going out to the store and to my school and to the restaurant and going on vacation. The word of God calls us, give to God in his kingdom and his ministry. Well, you know, but I'm kind of short a little bit on funds. I need that little bit of extra cash for that shiny new thing that I've been saving up for all this time. And, And didn't I give a little bit to God last month or was that last year? So easy to ignore or rationalize. I don't hear from God, la, 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 when he's speaking to us very clearly in his word. And so it's not enough for the Israelites to simply hear about this feast. In verse 16, they do what? They do it. They do it. They build booths. They camp on the roof in front of their house, in front of the temple, at the park, wherever there is room throughout the city. And here's the key question I want you to be thinking about. As they're doing all these things, you know, being like this weird, doing this weird process of building tents and living in them. Do they rejoice? Do they experience joy in their relationship with God before or after they obey? You don't know. This is kind of a trick question. Afterwards, we'll see in verse 17. We haven't got there yet. Then the question I want to ask you is, then what is the possible motivation for them to cosplay as campers? Because they're, they're not really camping. They're doing it right in front of their house. It's like when you are kids, like, say, I want to go camping. And then you set up a tent like in the living room or in the backyard. That's not camping right? They're cosplaying as campers. And so what's the motivation here? When God speaks, I trust that his character and his commands are good. That's the only reason I have to camp in front of my own house or in the town square. And so like the Jewish people of Nehemiah's time, we discover the joy of the Lord by first obeying God's word because we trust God is good. Let me reframe it for you this way. When when the Bible prompts us to obey something that the Lord is calling us to, we may hesitate because of the uncertainty or or unclarity of of that moment. Well, God, you're telling me to do something in your word, but how is this good? How does this help my situation? Now, what this passage is not saying is not saying, you know what? You need to do better. Try harder. Just obey God. That's not what it's saying. What it is saying is that like Nehemiah's people, when we can't yet see a good outcome, then we trust that he's a good God. You understand? Like when God tells you and gives you a prompting to obey something in the word of God, a lot of times we don't want to obey because we don't know, well, I don't know how that's good or how that helps me. When we can't yet see a good outcome from our obedience, will you put your trust in a good God? Because our view of God determines whether or not we'll trust and obey scriptures. You see, if you see God as this distant, demanding, shouting, abusive tyrant or killjoy, then of course obedience seems like a pain. It seems like being oppressed. But if you see God as a loving father, as a loving dad, who's kind, who's compassionate, who cares for his kids, that he's wise and good, that when he speaks and convicts and corrects and directs us, that it's for our good, it will change how we respond to the commands of his word. I'll tell you what, as a dad, I often uh, get it wrong. 
But there's a few times. There's times when I do get it right. And uh, we discovered over uh, the last couple of weeks that my daughter, many of you know my five-year-old daughter, Violet, she's in kindergarten this year. First time being in school, and she loves it. Uh, but often she'll come home from school, and this past week uh, she'll be tired and cranky and hungry. And so uh, my wife, uh, she's so smart. So Melissa tells me, you know, just give her a break. Let her, instead of making her do her homework right away, uh, let her come home, give her a break to play, and let her recharge, and then she can do her homework after dinner, after her bath that night, and she's usually much better about it. But this past week, we couldn't help but notice that she was even more exhausted and cranky and tired than usual, and I knew, I knew that if we waited till after dinner, after her bath, that there is going to be a lot of wailing and gnashing of teeth, both her and me, so I insisted with her, you need to do your math homework before dinner this one night. And the result, of course, the mother of all tantrums. And after the screaming and the gnashing of teeth and the wailing uh, all died down, uh, I spent a few moments, and this is one of the few times I got it right this week. I actually failed it many times this week, but there was one day I got it right. And so afterwards, I asked her a few questions. Honey, who am I? I'm your daddy. And who are you? I'm your daughter. You know, does daddy love you? Yes. <laughs> now, when I tell you to do things, is it to make your life better or worse? Trick question, right, for you as adults. But, uh, and so she's like, better. <laughs> right? Okay. Then can you please trust daddy when I tell you to do it now, that it's going to be better for you so that you get to do the things that you like um, right before bed? Okay. And so we struggled with getting her math homework done, dinner, bath, getting her ready for bed. And you know what? Um, later that night, as we were reading together and as we were snuggling together, she surprised me. You know, Daddy, you were right. This is better. I was like, oh, <laughs> one of those really good moments as a daddy. And I think about um, when our Heavenly Father is speaking to you or speaking to your situation through, through scriptures, before you get to the joy in his presence, are you willing to trust him in obedience? What is something that God is prompting you about that you are hesitant about following? When you can't yet see that good outcome, that you will trust that he's a good father and be able to say to him, you're right, you're right, daddy. This is better. But what about those times when obedience is difficult or costly or painful? Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2 tells us this way. Looking to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him, in other words, the joy that is ahead of him, that's to come, he endured the cross, despising its shame, and then was seated at the right hand of the throne of God, of his Father. Now, I share this verse with you when when we think about obedience being difficult, because it's not saying that you should seek out pain or that pain is good. It's not the shame and suffering of, the, of paying for our sins on a cross that brings Jesus joy. Because this, this passage says that Jesus, uh, for the joy set before him, he's going to endure the cross. But what he's doing there is he's looking past the cross. He's fixing his eyes further to the joy that's to come from trusting and obeying his Father. And we see that on the other side of pain, He's going to experience this deep joy of renewing his intimacy with his Father, seated at the right hand of the throne, and renewing his intimacy with us, 
by paying for our sins, reconciling us with God. That by trusting his dad, he kept his sights on the joy that he knows is coming. And it makes him able to move past the fear and the anguish of Gethsemane. It gives him the strength to obey. And as you and I face difficult opportunities for obedience, it's not about, am I good enough? Am I doing enough? Can I be good enough? But trusting that God is the one who is good enough and doing enough. And then we find that there is a river of joy that we only discover by crossing through the valley of obedience. Now, I know it's easy to kind of look at this passage or look at what I'm saying. Okay, you're just telling me to rejoice about being this religious rule-following robot. Let's wrap up this passage. In all the assembly of those who had returned from the captivity, made booths and lived in the booths. For from the days of Joshua, the son of Nun, to that day, the people of Israel had not done so. And, an echo of verse 12, there was very great rejoicing. And day by day, from the first day to the last day, he read from the book of the law of God. They kept the feast seven days, and on the eighth day there was a solemn assembly according to the rule. So what's happening here is that in obedience to scriptures, they camp in these booths for a week. They receive the word of God every day. They are feasting. They are worshiping. They are celebrating together uh, more fully as a nation than uh, they've ever done for many generations, all the way back to the time of Joshua. And the result in verse 17 is what? There was very great rejoicing. They were filled with incredible joy. And the question is, why? I want you to remember, for those of you who are, who are more familiar with the Bible, what the Festival of Booths was all about. In Leviticus chapter 23, verse 43, it says that it is a reminder to all future generations of Israel that during the difficult times, during the difficult days that Israel had to wander in the wilderness and live in tents, that though that journey was hard, God saved them, God provided for them, God reconciled with them as his people in a promised land. And so having people, all these future generations, build tents and live in them was a reminder of the, the goodness of God in that. So in verse 17, now here's where I want you to catch this. How does Nehemiah describe his people, the people of his time? Look at verse 17. They are the assembly of all those who returned from captivity. Who cares? This is the key to this whole passage because it shows that Nehemiah's people, they understand that we are like that generation enslaved in Egypt. We were once people who were captives in Babylon, those who were returning from captivity. They faced threats huddling in tents in wilderness in the darkness. And our journey was also filled with distractions, dangers, doubts, and failures. In other words, the way that Nehemiah describes his people is saying their story is our story. Their captivity was our captivity. Their, our return is, was their return to the promised land. Like the wilderness generation, God also provided and preserved and pro protected us. And we celebrate how he rescued us from exile, how he redeemed us from sin and death, how he returned us to our land, how he restores us to right relationship with him. Isn't that good news? Isn't that what Jesus does for us? And so it gives us tremendous reason to worship 
and to rejoice. And so I want you to see in this passage, as God speaks to us through his word, he's not demanding blind obedience to a set of ridiculous uh, religious rules and regulations. Just shut up and follow the orders. That's not what the Bible is saying. And that's not what, the, what God is doing. That we instead discover joy in Christ as we come to understand the relevance of what he's saying to us and then applying his word to our lives. Do you understand what I'm saying? It's not blind obedience. It's not a parent telling you, uh, why, should, why do I have to do this? Because I said so. God doesn't demand blind obedience from us. But you see that Nehemiah's people, they made that connection. You're telling us to do this festival of booths for a reason. There's something that we understand that applies to us. Why are Nehemiah's people rejoicing? The festival of booths is not just a religious ceremony to them. It's not just following an old tradition. It's understanding the significance of what God has said to them and got done for the people back then and how it's relevant to their lives right now. And so they practice it. And it, what happens is it draws them closer to God and it fills their hearts with rejoicing. So if you want to experience God or if you want to experience joy, which is what we're talking about this morning, don't practice a religion of following rules. Practice a relationship of following Jesus, where you connect with him by listening to what he's saying, seeking to understand stand it, because he is good, his word is good, and as we live it out with him and through him, we discover that scripture is not existing just for information, but for transformation. Amen? And so I think about... Uh, I've shared this story with a few people with the board and some of our, the friends at church. Uh, I have, I've had to go to the dentist about five times over the past uh, two months. And uh, the reason why is because it turns out uh, I grind my teeth so hard that I actually uh, fractured one of, my, one of my crowns. I fractured one of my teeth under a crown. And so these five visits to the dentist, I needed a filling, I needed two crowns, and, I, and they actually had to remove one of my permanent teeth, so I, I'm disfigured inside. I have an uneven number of teeth. Now, my very well-meaning dentist, who I've been seeing for like 20 years, I've been going to the same dentist for 20 years, so she knows me, and you know, I, she knows that I'm a pastor. She says to me, Pastor, you know, you only came once over this past year to the dentist, because I was, you know, a little bit scared <laughs> of, 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 of uh, COVID. So you only came once over this past year. You have a lot of unused benefits from 2021. And since I'm, this was in January, since I'm submitting my year-end billing, and I haven't done so yet to the insurance company, I'm doing that next week, I could bill uh, all the things I'm doing um, in January uh, uh, for the end of 2021, because you're really going to need all the coverage for the work that I need to do on your teeth uh, that's going to be required in 2022. And my response to her in that moment was, yeah, I guess that's fine. You ever tempted to rationalize? or minimize something that you know is wrong, to not obey in some way. Well, these benefits are just going to go to waste. Uh, I should use them before I lose them. And it's okay if the dentist says it's okay, right? On that drive back home, or not to home, back to church, because I was coming back to, to work that day, God spoke and convicted me powerfully through his word in Proverbs chapter 12, verse 22. You guys familiar with it? The Lord detests lying lips and delights in those who act faithfully. Ow! <laughs> How am I going to tell my kids, which I say this all the time, the importance of honesty if I'm willing to bend? 
So I was on the drive back, I worked up the courage, call back on, on the Bluetooth uh, to the dentist's office. You know what, uh, I've made a mistake. I didn't blame, but own my own sin. I'm, I made a mistake. I had a lapse in integrity. Please, could you bill today's work for 2022 instead? Now, around the dinner table that night, I was sharing this story with uh, my kids because repentance should always include transparency and accountability, even with your family. And we had this great discussion about trusting and obeying God and his word. And my favorite moment is when uh, Emily asked me, hypothetical question, yeah, but what if, what if you were like, like really poor? Or what if uh, you can't afford like dental work? You know, and I told her, you know, I'm confident that if I were to disobey the word and deceive other people, that the consequences from being outside of God's will would be much worse. And instead, there comes a moment where you just have to trust God's word, trust that Jesus and his provision are better, even if I have to pay a lot of money out of pocket. And even though I failed that initial test of obedience, I praise the God of second chances who redeemed that situation and helped to make it right. Now, here's where the rubber meets the road, right? When the bills actually came, uh, the price tag, it stung quite a bit. It was in uh, the multiple thousands of dollars. And yet, every time I think about that day, the word of God speaking, convicting, changing, my heart rejoices because God turned my sin and shame into a lesson, into a discussion, into a connection that made me closer to my family and my Father in heaven. And so I get to say to God, you were right, Dad. This is better. Are you rejoicing in your relationship with Jesus lately? He wants to give you joy if you will listen. He is speaking directly to you, to your life, to your situation in his word about maybe your rest or your rejoicing, maybe your repentance from sin, maybe receiving forgiveness, maybe rethinking how you deal with your money or your marriage, about how you make decisions, about how to make a change and how to give you a fresh start. And so I want to encourage you this morning to take a moment and just ask him that during this next song, don't focus on the words of the songs unless you, your heart is really crying out for worship. But in the next song, just ask him, in your word, Lord, what are you calling me to hear? What are you calling me to understand? What are you calling me to obey? And I want you to ask yourself, am I willing to trust that he is a good father? Because that will determine whether or not you will respond to what he says. And I hope you will because as we listen, as we live out his word, his truth, and his life, you will be able to rejoice in the Lord. You will experience the joy of the Lord as your strength. You will rejoice in what the Lord has done for us. Heavenly Father, we bow before you in a quiet moment. And though this is a simple message, and I don't know who you're speaking to this morning or what you want, no, I don't, I take that back. I know who you're speaking to. You're speaking to every single one of us. I know that's true. I don't know the specifics or the situation. 
but there is something that you are trying to say to each of us, including myself. God, help us to hear you this morning. That as your word is preached, what do you want me to hear? What do you want me to understand? What do you want me to obey? Would you give us the courage and the comfort to trust that you are a good dad, that you give good things, even when it's painful or costly. May we find that there is great joy in the Lord, that we rejoice in the goodness of a God that 